You're listening to The RN Mentor, a podcast designed to document and bring you the work and experience of some of the most influential nurses in our profession. We will be sitting down and having a discussion with the leaders of today's nursing world as they share their work, how they navigate their nursing path, and their views on the future of the profession. My name is Ali Tayeb. I am a registered nurse, United States Navy veteran, a Jonas Veterans Healthcare Scholar, and your host for The RN Mentor. of the RN Mentor Podcast. Uh, I am super excited today to be joined by Dr. Brenna Morris. Dr. Morris is an associate professor in the Solomon School of Nursing, Zuckerberg College of Health Sciences at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. She also holds four board certifications. She is certified as a nationally certified school nurse, certified nurse educator, pain management nurse, and family nurse practitioner. Dr. Morris currently provides direct nursing care to children with chronic pain and complex conditions on a part-time basis outside of her duties as a faculty member. Dr. Morris conducts team and independent research related to pain in children in both the community and acute care settings. She is also involved in quality improvement and original research aiming to improve experiences for children and families with complex conditions at Boston Children's Hospital. In the community setting, she is recently conducting a study with parents of children with complex needs to ascertain parents' perceived characteristics of child pain experiences, determine the extent of which parents feel caregivers adequately address pain, and identify ways in which pain collaboration between parents and caregivers may be improved. She is now in the data collection phase for a study describing school nurse experiences during the COVID-19 pandemic. Outside of her clinical research area, Dr. Morris takes interest in examining theory-guided research and student success in nursing programs. Welcome to the show, Dr. Morris. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here chatting with you. Thank you. I'll start with my regular uh, started question for all my guests is how did you get started in the world of nursing? So that's a great question. I have um, what sometimes in my professional circle is a unique entry, but for your listeners and all the rest of the nurses, maybe they've had something similar. Um, thinking back to like high school, when you start to think about what is your job going to be, what do you want to do for a career? I did not see myself going to college at all. Um, my parents hadn't gone to college and I felt like, you know, we live in a house. We like live in a pretty quiet town. Like things seem fine. I could maybe do something like working at a business or I thought about um, something more artistic and creative like hair or makeup um, that could be my career. And one day my mom really sat me down and said, you know, you need to really think about college. You know, it's, it's not the nineties the anymore. It's really hard to get in any kind of job without going to college. And she shared some of the struggles that she had had in her career, not having a degree and how hard it was to work her way up. So then I had to really think about, okay, like, what do I want to do? 
And um, when I was in the ninth grade, I had a small non-cancerous tumor removed. Um, and even though, you know, it was benign and all that, it was pretty scary experience to have to go under the knife under anesthesia. And I just remember the nurses made me feel um, really good. They were confident in what they were doing and they put me at ease, answered all my questions. Um, you know, even just walking me through the, putting my initial on the surgical side, they have me draw like a smiley face to make it fun. And I thought, you know, I, I think I can do that for other people. I'd like to make other people feel the same way. Um, so, you know, when I thought back to that experience and then I started thinking about nursing, um, my first step in nursing was becoming a certified nursing assistant. So in my state, you can sometimes find a job without a certification, but there is like a state certification program. So I went to a professional training school. It was about a maybe six week course where we had, um, classroom learning tests, and then a little clinical at a long-term care site. And then I was able to get a job in the hospitals and that helped me work through college, uh, nursing school when I earned my bachelor's and then became an RN. So that's kind of the, my entry to practice was as a nursing aide and then um, an RN. That's amazing. That's amazing that you, um, so many times, like, you know, uh, I think the fact that we don't hear that much about how some of the people in the profession got into nursing, we don't always realize how similar our stories are to other people because just from interviewing people on this show it feels like everybody starts out with i didn't want to become a nurse but this is how i got into it uh, and now they're you know leading the profession and the work that they're doing so it's amazing it's amazing the uh the influence that nurses have on other individuals in coming into the profession uh, so I think it's fantastic that you had that, uh, that incredible experience that kind of paved the way for you to uh, get, into the, get into this role. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Um, now, you mentioned um, you finished your bachelor's degree. Uh, how did you, what was your first steps into going into the job market? Like, what were you, were you looking at a specialty or were you, uh, did you have a specialty in mind when you look when you got into it? Because right now you do a lot of work around children. Was that always a kind of a niche for you? No. So actually going through college and then in the final year at my bachelor's program, we didn't do a traditional clinical. We had like a one-to-one -one preceptorship or internship. And I was so passionate and excited to define an adult oncology. Mm -hmm. And I had a wonderful experience on an adult bone marrow transplant unit. Um, but because of my work as an aide, I kind of didn't have great feelings about hospital work um, through the internship, my clinicals, but then mostly my work experiences. I was an aide at three different hospitals throughout college. I saw that nursing wasn't really playing out um, like what I had experienced. And then even what like we talked about in school and with our textbooks that it seemed very task oriented. Um, in the medical surgical setting, I think, you know, even today, we probably hear from nurses that feel like they barely have time to make a relationship and do all the things they'd like to do by the time they get through their med pass. It's like, all right, well, I better go back to the Pixis because it's time to pull all my other meds. So um, I was open to any kind of job, but I started to think if there was other opportunities for me, perhaps in the community setting where I could build those relationships. Um, I know that you know, my classmates at the time and even my students now, they find those like super sexy skills of like doing CPR and putting in a, 
you know, getting blood everywhere. Like that's what they want to do. And, and that's fine. Um, but I really value those like relationships and communication and, you know, connecting someone to a resource, whether it be like getting them a dentist or glasses or like a hearing referral, I, um, feel very rewarded with those kind of things. So I started to look at the community and then something else I had going on is that I was entering graduate school right away. Um, during my undergrad time, I had a similar experience to what I had, you know, back when I was 15 in ninth grade with my surgery that my clinical instructors made me feel really smart and capable. And not that um, like anyone in my family had ever made me feel that I wasn't, but I went to a really competitive high school. And sometimes like, you know, there were students that needed a lot, a lot of help and they got help. And then there were students that were like gifted or excelling and they were uh, really had the spotlight on them and everyone else kind of fell in the middle. So I never really feel like I was, I was going to like achieve much, but anyway, these nursing school instructors made me feel like I could do it. And I was like worthy of their time and attention. Um, so I thought maybe I could be that for someone. So I thought about getting a master's so I could one day maybe teach clinical. And then I had a professor say to me, I was asking for a letter of recommendation. You know, if you want to go anywhere in nursing education, and I also have senior writing and think you could do it, you should think about a PhD. And actually there's a program here um, in the state at UMass Boston that has a bachelor's to PhD program. And there's a ton of grant money right now for people to do it. And I was like, okay, let's do it. So, <laughs> so I was starting graduate school and I was like, you know, I, I don't know if I want to be juggling like the nights, the weekends, the holidays as I have been through undergrad. Let me find a job in the community that might not have those things. So I completely fell into a school health position. Um, I was supposed to substitute for someone who was out on knee surgery for two weeks, who um, had a one-to-one -one client and then that person came back and it rolled into like, we actually need someone to cover summer camp. And then it turned into our school nurse retired. Would you job share with somebody? <laughs> uh, that's how I kind of fell into my first job in an area that I'm really passionate about and still kind of working in different ways to this day, school health. That's great. Um, uh, you know, uh, school nursing is one of those pieces that so many of us like don't know enough about but it is, it's public health. I mean, it's, it's complex. You deal with uh, children and families and all kinds of complex issues. And I think it's so underrated uh, uh, in the, in, in the, in the, uh, in the profession overall. I don't, I think we don't, uh, we don't uh, give school nurses the true credit they really deserve. Um, so how was that experience for you? I mean, you went into, uh, how long did you do that? And well, how was that experience for you? Um, so I was at the first school I worked at, let's see, for maybe six or seven years. And then I, um, let's see, I started substituting in a different district. And then I took on a home care case. So there was a child who attended the school. I became um, friendly with the nurse through working in the classroom. And I was like, you know, I'm looking for maybe some extra summer hours. Like if you ever want Fridays off or something, or if, you know, this guy has weekend shifts available. And um, I just, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed, again, making the relationship with his family. Um, I loved doing the home care thing where we'd go to school. And then after school, I could like take him out for a walk and make sure he could access his community. So I transitioned out of direct school nursing practice. Um, I was actually still substituting at one of the districts, but along with that misunderstanding that a lot of nurses and then other stakeholders like policymakers 
uh, superintendents, principals have of school health is that it's very underpaid. So I was, you know, driving about 45 minutes each way to sometimes substitute for $19 an hour. And it just didn't make sense to me anymore to have to take one of my faculty days off and then move that work to the weekends to have to commute, spend so much on gas and, um, that, you know, relatively low nursing wage. So left school health, um, stayed with my home health, which was still school involved as during the week we would, uh, go to school. And, um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I don't think I fully understood school nursing when I entered. I did know that it was a place that my instructors has said that in the community, you'll really use the full extent of your bachelor's. And at the time, the IOM report was calling for, you know, nurses with bachelor's and practicing to the full extent of their practice. And I was like, cool, so I should be prepared to do this. Um, In some ways, I certainly was. But as you mentioned, school nursing is public health and everything. It's chronic care. It's sometimes acute care. It's occasionally emergency care, a lot of mental health and um, a lot of having to wear different hats. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. That's, that's, that's great. Um, so you mentioned you were going into a, a PhD program. How was that transition going from a bachelor's degree into graduate school for you? Like, uh, how did you know what area you're going to study? Um, and maybe did the school being a school nurse, uh, influence that at all? Definitely. So the topic I ended up researching for my dissertation was how we assess pain in children with what was called at the time special needs, but we now refer to perhaps as developmental or intellectual disability and delay, because I was working at a school for kids with um, different intellectual and developmental disabilities. And I had no resources, whether it was online, my textbooks, my national organization of how do I assess pain in these kids? who can't always reliably report to me and maybe can't even localize by like pointing with a finger. So that's the topic I ended up on that kind of started my research career. When I entered PhD school in my um, application essay, I did have to talk about some potential areas of research and um, where the program at UMass Boston was focused on population health and health policy. I thought of some really interesting insurance things because this was pre-Affordable Care Act. Um, And thinking back to it now, it's like, wow, I don't study anything about that. Um, But I feel like I at least had some ideas. And then the transition to the type of work was different. So, you know, in pre-licensure, it's all about study, 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 pass that NCLEX, do the NCLEX style questions. And then graduate school, I feel you really get to think. Um, The assignments are supposed to get you to expand your mind and look at different sources and critically evaluate research. So it was a different type of work. Um, And coming into it without as much clinical experience as some of my more seasoned nursing classmates, I never felt left out um, because I had at least worked in the hospitals and had my job and we were talking about like big health concepts. So um, that was fine. And then it was also a bit of an advantage to have never lost my school brain. Like I didn't know what it was like for September to come and not be packing my backpack and getting my lunch ready. Um, where for some of my other colleagues, that was definitely a transition. And then also just using like the library database or even Word and PowerPoint, which had changed a lot according to my classmates from when they might've last used it in their bachelor's or master's program. Um, so some of those things were 
definitely to my advantage. Um, and when I talk to my students now about, you know, do I want to enter grad school right away? I know it's kind of a hot topic in nursing. Like, should we have a certain number of practice hours or practice years before pursuing a practice advanced degree, or even like a research theoretical type degree. And I really think it's different for every person. But one thing I do talk about is that you won't get out working and then have this big lifestyle change of needing to attend school and write papers. Yeah, I, I agree. I definitely agree. Um, so you have a, 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 a rather nice portfolio of studies that you have continued to do on pain uh, and children. Um, how did that portfolio come about? Was it a continuation of your dissertation or it was just uh, um, the content wasn't out there and you realized the content wasn't out there? And how did you go about uh, building that portfolio? Um, so I do carry multiple streams of research, which feels kind of necessary in the current tenure environment. But for my pain line, um, each study that I've done really was born out of the previous study. So for that dissertation, I surveyed school nurses on how do you assess pain in the absence of any resource, whether it be textbook, continuing ed, um, the web, like what are we doing? We don't have anything. So then I took their responses from that and I built an educational module about how we might assess pain, you know, here's what we are doing. And also here's some other tools that haven't been validated in schools yet, but might be helpful in our community practice. Um, I presented that at our national conference. And then I also traveled to five regions of Massachusetts and presented it to school nurses here. And I turned that into a study evaluating um, their knowledge and skill gain before and after. And then also, I forget if it was a three or six month follow-up of what have you been able to implement um, in your practice. And one surprising response was, I wanted to implement all of it, but I don't have time. So that started my like stream off of let's look at the school nursing workforce and why they don't have time to develop when it's so important being the one person in the building. Um, so that stream went that way. Then um, from the dissertation, school nurses said, you know, in the absence of resources and also the inability of the students to sometimes access pain assessment tools, I really rely on the teachers and parents. So I did focus groups with special education teachers saying, you know, nurses say they're relying on you. How are you finding pain in the classroom? And how do you decide to like bring a kid down to the nurse? Um, they also said they relied on parents. And interestingly, they, there was a difference in lead teachers. So teachers um, that are like the main teacher of the classroom, master's degree prepared, how the nurses responded to them bringing a student down to the health office versus a teacher's aide. Um, the aides often felt dismissed, which is um, very hard to hear because they're not only a valuable member of the team, but often the aide spends a lot more time one-to-one -one with the students and would get to know their pain behaviors and pain cues. Um, so I did that study. And then the other part where both parties said, you know, we rely on parents. They are really the expert in the care of these kids. I did individual interviews um, with about 30 parents of kids who were nonverbal with complex conditions saying, okay, everyone says they're looking at you. How do you find pain? Um, so <laughs> to talk about, you know, they just, they know their kids and they try to share the baseline. They do things like take video and share it with like docs and other mm. caregivers. Um, but they also said, 
that when they present with their kids, they sometimes feel dismissed or ignored or have to keep going back and back to the ER to get any care. Um, they talked about how sometimes they go to their community pediatrician when their kid is just off or not being themselves. And, you know, they roll in, they have a wheelchair, maybe there's a trach, there's a device, perhaps there's a home care nurse accompanying. And the pediatrician says, oh, there's must be something going on here. Please like go to the city ER right away, which is a huge burden on their time and cost and then once they get to the ER, we did another study. Okay, what happens when these kids come in? They're usually admitted for almost two weeks, about 11 days. And somewhere around the 11th day of admission, after doing the million dollar workup, we finally decide to like dip the urine or look in the ear because the most common discharge diagnoses for this like pain of questionable or unknown origin after all the scans and the tests was constipation, UTI, or otitis. <laughs> <laughs> that we could have solved in the community. Uh, so that led to my next study of how can we get um, community pediatricians, ER docs, and inpatient docs to remember that these kids can have some of the same pain sources as kids that are neurotypical. Wow, that's amazing. That has been my pain stream thus far. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's great. Uh, and, and I have to mention, uh, you, did, you did invite myself and MK Zurich uh, to contribute um, for uh, one of your um, uh, one of your studies. Uh, tell us how you came about and, and uh, coming with the idea that you wanted this type of a uh, uh, format. And I won't go into the details of it, but I want you to sh if you could share. Yes. So when we did our um, art poster collaboration, which um, maybe small, shameless plug. I have art posters left. So at the end of this, <laughs> anybody would like a set, I'm happy to mail them to you. Um, this was a kind of serendipitous silver lining of COVID. That parent interview study was funded by the American Society of Pain Management Nursing. And part of the funding I applied for was to then take the results and go present at their national conference. So I was going to have my airfare, hotel, and conference registration covered um, by this grant. When COVID happened and that got canceled, it was online and um, it was free to be a presenter who was registering for the conference as well. So I had all these leftover dollars and I thought, okay, what is something like really cool I can do about the dissemination of this work? So from the parent interviews, there was two things that parents consistently felt passionate about. They wanted to um, remind providers that parents are partners. You know, parents are not your adversaries. They're not on the other side. They want to work with you and they want to be valued members of the team because they really are experts in the care of their own children. And then the second thing was not necessarily related to pain, but something that came up often enough that it was a big theme in the study that um, they can hear us is what parents kind of said. And what they meant by that is, I know my kid can't talk to you and they might not respond in a way that tells you they're taking in exactly what you're saying, but there's someone in there. You know, there's someone that will laugh at a joke when two adults in the room tell a joke. There's someone that knows what kind of movies they want on their iPad and will react when, you know, there's something babyish on it and they really want something more teen, like a Transformers or X-Men or something. You know, they're in there. So please address them and remember that they can hear your words and, you know, they can feel your presence and energy. So I thought, why don't we communicate to both providers and parents through a series of clinic posters? Um, and then I had known that you were both a nurse and a professor and artist. 
through your um, healthcare memorial art project. And I had seen your doodles and drawings and thought they were really cool. So reached out to you and said, you know, could we do something? And you were totally on board. Um, you connected me with a few other artists and I feel lucky that comic nurse MK um, was also able. And we developed this really cool series of um, posters that, you know, promote to both the provider that parents are our partners and the kids are here too. Um, and it reminds parents to either advocate to be part of the team or it also signals to them like this office does care. Yeah, that was awesome. And, and thank you for in, inviting me to, to be part of that um, because I th this was the first time I had really thought about uh, communicating. Like I've always thought of art as communication, but I never thought of taking uh, an outcome of a study and turning it into an artistic expression that can then go into clinical settings. Like we have infographs and things like that, but this was, this was a bit different. Uh, and, I'll, and, I'll, and just for the listeners, I will put the link to the graphic, to the posters. Uh, and um, as Dr. Morris mentioned, if you want to reach out to her, um, I have it framed in my office, uh, just an FYI. <laughs> uh, so it's, uh, so, um, so anyway, so thank you. I, I thought that was a, that was a, uh, that was a, a stretch of my imagination to read something that we normally see in a journal, uh, as so academic and turning it into an artistic expression that can then go communicate the study findings, I think was, a um, uh, was, was, it was fun to do. It was really fun to do. I hope so. it's not our last one. That was one of my favorite things to do as well. And hopefully we inspire other healthcare research teams to think about art as a communication medium. That'd be fantastic. Thank you. And, and you mentioned the Healthcare Memorial Art Project. And thank you. I need to let everybody know. Uh, and I have it linked to my site. Uh, Dr. Morris did donate one of her stethoscopes uh, to that project. So you, you can actually uh, look at that uh, uh, on the website. So, so thank you for doing that as well. I greatly appreciate it. Um, so you also have a life on uh, the academic side. Uh, you're, you are an associate professor and you mentioned you're juggling multiple, um, uh, um, multiple study or research areas. How is life as, uh, not that I, I'm not familiar with it, but how is life as an academician? Uh, in uh, as a nurse and doing research? Sometimes I feel like an outsider no matter where I go. So as an academic who is continuing to be in hands-on patient care practice, um, sometimes I think other academics might perceive that as like, I'm not serious about my scholarly work because I take a whole day every week to go like be in a clinic. And then when I'm in the clinic only one day, I feel like some kind of nurse poser that has this whole other career that has nothing to do with patient care. Um, I think it's one of the bigger problems in nursing when we judge each other for what we want to do or what we're currently doing, you know, forgetting that we're all kind of here for the same reason. We're in some way doing the same thing. We all want to help people in, you know, some way. So sometimes I do feel like an outsider no matter where I go. Um, being an academic has many rewards. I love getting to work with students, um, mentoring students, helping them publish, um, you know, helping them just 
finish school or get through a certain exam is really rewarding. And then seeing them finish and be successful and get their first job and like live happy lives is also great. Um, but that's not to say that some students aren't challenging. Um, I've definitely had students that are just unhappy and we can't see eye to eye on how to fix it or students that might have really involved parents. And that's tough because with you know laws and regulations, there's only so much I can say to parents. And even if FERPA weren't a thing, you know, how much should I be involved with the parent of an adult learner? So right. things like that come up. Um, and then constantly having to revise our courses. So when you teach in a pre-licensure program, you usually either have courses that are nearly 100% testing and courses that are not. And we're always kind of um, chasing the new NCLEX, making sure that our pass rates can stay elevated and then uh, juggling with the idea that is the NCLEX, you know, the best way to go? Um, might there be other ideas of how we can enter practice and feeling torn between I need to get you ready for this test, but I really wish we could talk about like real nursing stuff. Um, so I'm not sure I've even answered your question, but being an academic <laughs> always like you pulled in two different directions for any reason <laughs> but it is it is it is challenging uh when uh, when and and your know, faculty come from different perspectives of themselves uh we have uh which is one of my pain areas since we talked about pain a, a few minutes ago is um uh academic faculty that see themselves as the gatekeepers of the profession and that gatekeeping a lot of times in my just from my own personal experience has led to really toxic uh, learning environments uh, which where the students are no longer enjoying uh, where I think that when once you suck the joy out of the room uh, you you maybe you've gone too far and I think that's where uh, I always I always kind of butt heads with some colleagues it's all like um, and then from, from a testing perspective, I'm, I'm 100% on board that we need to find better ways of doing other than NCLEX, just because I have never been a good test taker. I have test anxiety. I've, you know, I don't know if I've always been like, I don't know, if, I don't want to say I've, I've been taught to be afraid of tests just because of my experiences uh, throughout, you know, just growing up. Um, I barely, uh, and I think I've, I may have mentioned this before, maybe I'm mentioning it too many times, but I barely graduated high school. Uh, so for me to actually be at this point in my life and take tests and be in classroom settings, I think uh, I'm going to pat myself on the back for doing that. But but it, it is challenging, um, you know, and have, I have an education background, too. So uh, it's hard for me to uh, sometimes um, under, understand why we are so test heavy. Like I understand some of the things, facts that we need to know. I, I totally get that. But is there a better way for us to get to um, um, evaluate the students learning? And there's a lot, of a lot of better ways to do it. They're just probably more time consuming or will take more effort. Uh, it will maybe take more faculty. Uh, and so I think from a, the profession has a lot of work to do uh, from that perspective, uh, I think. I absolutely do not want to be a gatekeeper. I literally want to be like the super stretch limo that drives <laughs> in comfort and style to the end of their nursing, you know, licensure journey finish line. Um, I'm sure many of our nursing colleagues and departments, like there's a divide. There's people that like really take it seriously that they're somehow protecting the public by being a gatekeeper. Um, 
but I, I really feel it's, it's unnecessary and there can be room in nursing for everybody who wants to do it. Um, it only strengthens what we can give patients and families and communities when we let people in. Absolutely. I agree. I agree. Uh, the more, the more, the merrier, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, obviously we have some barriers that we can't get past that. Like we can only have so many students in the program at any given time, uh, just because there's only so many placements. And I wish our uh, hospital and clinic partners were more open to accepting more students. Um, but that's always, that's especially during the pandemic when a lot of our hospitals actually in California, I know anyway, they kind of shut the doors to students for some time. And that became, um, that became a quite a challenge. Um, so, but I a hundred percent agree. I think we working more towards developing those supportive environments where everybody is successful and not trying to have like, you know, maintain it. Like uh, I always question when people have told me like, why does everybody in your class have an A? Uh, which I've had times where everybody's in the classes had an A and like, because everybody in the class had did a work. Right. Um, so I'm okay with that. Uh, and I've had people like, no, you should have a bell curve. I'm like bell curve for what? <laughs> I mean, if everybody got an A, everybody got an A. I I'm not going to like make it like more difficult or, or change the criteria just so I have a bell curve in the class. That doesn't make, that's never made sense to me. But yeah, I 100% agree. Uh, more supportive environment so we can make sure everybody is successful in the profession. Um, you mentioned something that, 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 you know, it's come up in conversation quite a bit, it feels like in the last month or two with my guests. Um, you mentioned, um, uh, and something that actually came up with, with actually really my last get, guess is, um, avenues in higher education, right? Like, like, and judgment, right? You, you, we were at the, the, we are, I think we are a judging profession. Uh, and I wish we weren't as much a judging profession because the topics that have come up in the past have been, uh, like, for example, we, I've had people on the show before that didn't have a bachelor's, they had an associate's degree in, in nursing but their bachelor's degree was in something else, right? Or they may have gotten a bachelor's degree in something else first, and then they went into, got an associate's degree in nursing, uh, or they've gotten their graduate work in a different field than nursing. Uh, and we build these artificial barriers to keep people, <laughs> feels like keep once you've stepped out of the line or you haven't gone the exact route of uh, all nursing, uh, like we try to push them out where the avenues are close to them. And I wish that wasn't the case. So uh, you mentioned, uh, again, you mentioned judging. How do you think uh, we could do perhaps a better job as being more uh, inclusive? This might become one of my regular questions for my guests is how do we develop a more inclusive uh, profession where we are accepting of the various degrees and various entry po points into the profession. Um, how do you think we can do a better job of doing that? So I think some of it is the, you know, N of one, each individual person to look at how have they been inclusive and exclusive. But then of course, you know, our unit culture, our school of nursing culture, all of those things like bigger group change. Um, I think something that we have to work on, and I'm not sure of best or realistic actionable steps, is to increase representation in nursing of people that have been historically excluded. So historically excluded from attending any school 
or licensure, or when we're excluding our ADRN and LPN colleagues from certain positions or contributing because we think for some reason they're less. And sometimes it's kind of strange. It feels like the um, NCLEX testing diehards are sometimes the loudest about how ADRNs can't or shouldn't. And it's like, well, hold on, hold on. They took the same NCLEX, which is like what you're living and dying by. So which one is it? Um, right. <laughs> yeah, but I think um, making room for people that have been historically excluded. So nurses of any gender, nurses who are people of color, nurses from overseas that would like to join us in practice in the U.S. Um, I think sharing more of our stories, we probably have more in common than we think. So when we're judging someone for a choice they make in their career or what um, specialty they'd like to go in, understanding more of our individual backstories and seeing like, you know, maybe that wasn't the path for me, but that's what's best for them. And they're doing what they like. Maybe just doing a little more, um, you know, strolling past when we have nothing nice to say and realizing that, you know what, they're, um, let's say they're entering school nursing or they're going to grad school and that's what's best for them. And that's going to make them happy. And I'm cool with that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I think that you, 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 you brought up a good point is I think, again, changing the mindset and I've, and I've, uh, you know, I've, I've been lucky enough that I've had, um, that I've had people in my life that have, uh, um, contributed to my thought process, right. As mentors where I've, because, you know, I, I drank the Kool-Aid when we, everybody jumped on the bandwagon of bachelor's degree entry point into the profession. I was like, yeah, bachelor's degree entry point into the profession. And then you look into it. I'm like, well, no, that's not the route everybody needs to go. Uh, and same thing with, uh, you know, how do you, what, what should be your, everybody was like, oh, your first job should be in a med surge unit and then i'm like yeah your first job should be med surge and then i'm like why why am i and i you know i had i've had opportunity to uh to think about my own um judgments of where nursing and where people should be and i and i've had like i said i've been lucky enough to have the opportunity to question my own um my own reasons and you know change my mind right um, so, so now I, you know, I tell my students, like, they're like, somebody's telling me I should go to med search first. So I'm like, what do you want to do? Right. Where's your passion at? That's where you should, you know, go into, but, or, you know, some people have said, I want to, can I, is it okay for me to go to ambulatory care nursing? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. It's okay for you to go into ambulatory care nursing. You don't have to go to a med search unit, but then as a profession, I think we've built these barriers where if you're on ambulatory care side and you decide to go to a hospital, now it's an issue right? A lot of times, because now you don't have the experience of the hospital necessarily, and you're no longer qualified for a new grad program, right? There's those transitional components aren't necessarily in place. Um, so I think, like I said, um, I, I, I've been lucky enough to have mentors and people in my life where I've, I've listened to them and had the opportunity to question my own belief system. Um, same thing in academia, you know, uh, when I first came in, you know, that first couple of people I spoke to uh, were adamant that we are gatekeepers. And I, you know, I put on my gatekeeper jacket and went into it as that. And then after a few months, I'm like, this doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel good at all. Right. Um, so, um, so yeah, I think we have, a, we have a lot of work to do. And uh, as a profession, I, I actually love the fact that we're we, we do have the ability to have different entry points into the profession. And the fact that we are able to still provide quality care 
uh, just at different levels and, and different specialties. So, um, so yeah, thank you. Um, and thank you for the work that you're doing. You're, you're doing incredible research. You're doing incredible work on the, on the, on the community side and you're doing incredible work as faculty. Well, you're like triple threat, triple threat. That's what we're going <laughs> to. All right. Fantastic. Um, what's next for you? What is next? Um, so right now I'm collecting data from school nurses via group interview about their experiences working through COVID. So we're talking about what was it like to transition online? How did you keep in touch with your school community? Um, and then maybe when you went back, how did you deal with changing guidelines constantly and having to be the enforcer of such guidelines? And are you leaving the profession? Have you thought about leaving? Um, our team wants to find out, you know, how can we support school nurses going forward? Um, not only if there's another pandemic, but just how the job has changed and how can we make sure that all of the positive attention school nurses have had over the COVID, you know, we had some really great press um, and news opportunities. A friend and colleague of us both, Robin Kogan, was oh, yeah. excellent, our queen on CNN. <laughs> uh, showing, you know, what school nurses are doing and having a voice. So how do we how do we keep that momentum going? And how do we make sure that it doesn't all fall off and we lose the funding and availability of school nursing positions? Um, after that, so I shared and I'm fine sharing on the pod that I will be on maternity leave. So I'll be doing nothing. I'm really going to be trying to uh, disconnect and not work, which from friends I hear is kind of tough. Um, I would next in my pain line, like to speak with home care nurses. So when I used to do home care, um, from doing it and then from talking to the parents, there's a lot of turnover which is tough because working with some of the children who qualify for 24 seven care in the home, they are nonverbal. They have limited purposeful movement of like their limbs and can't communicate a whole lot with us, but we know that they're at risk for pain due to procedures they've had or implanted devices or some of their chronic conditions. So I need to talk to these nurses and see, you know, how do you find pain? And also what are the barriers to you staying in this job? Um, having done it and, in living in a state where there's a cap for the nursing rate of our state Medicaid recipients. I think is probably one. Um, I would see a lot of like newer nurses come get the pediatric home experience and then go to the hospital setting for, you know, more opportunity, which is completely their right. So, you know, I think um, pay is an obvious one, but what else might be keeping us from staying in these positions longer term so we can get to know the patients um, reduce burden on the family because when there's not a nurse, when your kid needs 24 seven care, you, the parent are staying home or you're staying up all night, or you're doing like five shifts in a row if there's just not nursing coverage. So um, I'd like to dive into that from both a pain and workforce perspective. Yeah, that would be great. Um, sounds like a lot. And congratulations again uh, on, 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 your, on your soon uh, to, to be maternity leave. Yes. Uh, so fantastic, fantastic news. So glad to hear it. Um, so one last question for you before I, I hand it over to you for any last thoughts. Um, how, has, how have mentors along the way influenced what you've done in the profession of nursing? I mean, I couldn't even measure or put into words the impact mentors have had, um, you know, from 
my colleagues at the Northeastern University School Health Academy, that's a continuing education um, program for school nurses, having me do my pain teaching session in the five regions of Massachusetts and letting me collect data um, to people at my own place of work who were just willing to like read drafts of stuff or other nurse educators I met at conferences that were like, yeah, I see that you're new, like email me anytime. Like I'm teaching pharmacology too, let's share resources, all of those things. But even more so, I'd say just their willingness to mentor and kind of, you know, again, be that person. Like I want to make someone feel like they just made me feel has, you know, turned around and really inspired my mentorship of students. Um, you know, I think there's room for everybody at the top and to, you know, help lift our students up, give them new experiences, or even, you know, if they're not formally our students, nurses in the community who are thinking about grad school or want to write or want to do some research, like come on board, there's room for everyone. That's, that's awesome. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I always love the fact that people that are willing to give their time uh, just to uh, help colleagues out as far as where the need is. Um, so, um, so thank you for sharing your experiences. Uh, any last thoughts for our listeners? I feel like we covered a lot, but this being the RN Mentor podcast, I'm wondering if many of your listeners might be newer nurses and students. And I would just say, you know, never be afraid to speak up. Um, We've talked about, you know, doing research, teaching, and sometimes, you know, this whole gatekeeping thing. And um, when I started as a teacher, I received some perhaps, you know, well-intentioned, but what turned out to be bad advice and not my style. And I wish I had spoken up and said, you know, I think there's room for student flexibility. So whether it's something in more of the... um, education or research side or your actual clinical practice, we can't be afraid of speaking up or going as far as being something like a whistleblower. Um, it'll not only hurt your mental health to be sitting on it, but there's a risk that'll hurt a patient, a student, a research subject. So um, let's try to speak up when we can. Great. Uh, fantastic advice. Fantastic advice. Um, so thank you again for being on the show. I'm, uh, you know, I've, I've been privileged enough to having uh, been in communication with you for the last couple of years. Uh, yeah. thank, thanks to uh, sort of thanks to COVID. I mean, that's really what connected us. <laughs> so uh, I greatly appreciate uh, the work that you're doing. And, uh, and like I said, uh, privileged to have, uh, to have had the opportunity to um, continue and hopefully to continue uh, to work with you. Fantastic. For having me on, it was a joy to be on your show. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, We have been listening to Dr. Brenna Morris, and thank you for joining us, and we will uh, talk again soon. You've been listening to the RN Mentor with your host, Ali Taya. Please don't forget to visit www.aliartayeb.com. That's www.aliartayeb.com for podcast notes and resources. And don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, I wish you fair winds and following seas.